Okay, welcome. My name is Andy Lack, Inside Golf Podcast, Sony Open Betting and DFS Preview. Before we dig into the Sony, I want to give a quick shout to the debut week of The Scramble with Rick Gaiman. This is a weekly show that Rick and I co-host. It's a live show every Tuesdays and Fridays at 12 p.m. Eastern. You can also find the replay on the Rick Run Good YouTube channel. And if you are an audio guy on the 300 Yards to Unknown podcast feed, really appreciate the positive feedback that we've gotten so far on the show. It's something that we are both super excited for. And please help us grow it, whether that's by hitting the like button, sharing it on Twitter, subscribing to the feed, leaving us comments. We love it all. And we want it to continue to be an interactive show. So tune in live. We answer questions. Um, I think we thread the needle pretty well in terms of keeping it pretty silly and lighthearted, but also trying to provide some interesting info that will help you for betting in DFS. So it's something that we're really proud of so far. Um, something we've wanted to do together for a while. And if you haven't checked it out yet, Tuesdays and Fridays, 12 p.m. Eastern, you can catch the replay on the Rick Run Good YouTube channel or on the 300 Yards to Unknown podcast feed. Okay. All right. One more thing that I want to touch on really quickly before we get to the Sony Open. And most of my friends already know this. Uh, and I'm not going to like make a big announcement on Twitter about this. Uh, but I just want to keep all my listeners completely up to date because I'm so very appreciative of all you guys. And I've always tried to be incredibly transparent about everything um, that's going on in my life. But after a very brief three-month stint, I will be moving on from the score to explore a couple other opportunities. Um, now, there are a couple reasons why I made this decision. But the main one was um, during those three months, I was offered a couple of really interesting media opportunities, um, one of them being doing video content for this media group that was working with the PGA Tour. One of them had to do with this podcast um, and then mainly the show with Rick that I just talked about, which I had no problem saying no to the first couple of things. Um, but the show with Rick was the first time where I felt like, man, that would be a real bummer if I couldn't do that. And the reason I wouldn't be able to do any of those things is because the score has an outside content policy where if you are under the score's payroll, um, you're not allowed to accept payment um, for any other writing or content services, services which I completely understand, by the way. Um, so when I went to the score, I had to I had to drop all my podcast sponsorships, and I wouldn't um, have really been able to do anything else outside of reporting the news for them, which which I I kind of knew, um, and I, I really loved my time with the score. I loved the people there, um, but I, I I quickly kind of found out that it wasn't really a place where I was going to be able to do a lot of stuff uh, creatively per se. The stuff that I really am the strongest at, whether it be making predictions, writing longer form content, 
opinionated content, thinking critically about golf courses, diving into analytics, like all of those things I wasn't really able to do there, um, which is fine. Like I said, I kind of already knew that when I took the job and I did feel that I would still be able to do stimulating stuff creatively through the podcast. Um, but I didn't really expect to get some of these other opportunities that I was really excited about. And the thought of having to turn down working so closely with Rick, um, amongst other people, uh, who's been such a mentor to me, that, that would have been a tough pill for me to swallow. So I thought about it a lot. I kind of got the advice of a lot of people that have been at this a lot longer than me. Um, all people that I'm really lucky to have forged friendships with. And the overwhelming sentiment was kind of like, yeah, I, I don't know if you should be pigeonholing yourself like this. Some, uh, some of that stuff is, is, is tough to say no to, you know? So I told them on Friday that I was going to move on to pursue some other opportunities. And I've gotten extremely lucky that I've been able to transition to other things so seamlessly, whether it be the show with Rick, immediately joining the incredible team over at Odds Checker, uh, doing stuff with Sal on his golf betting network. And there are a couple other things that I've got up my sleeve that are coming soon as well. But I'm just really grateful that through the relationships that I've built, um, that I was in a position to pivot so easily. Um, and, you know, I go back to this a lot, but, you know, I had zero Twitter followers nine months ago. I mean, legitimately zero. That is not an exaggeration. The first podcast that I did was the match play in April. And, I think six people listened. <laughs> and in the short period of time since then, I think the only reason that this has at least somewhat been able to work out for me, I'm nowhere near where I want to be, but I've made some good progress. Um, I don't really think that I'm more talented at this than anyone else. I don't really think that I'm necessarily smarter at this than other people or even necessarily more charismatic than other people. I think the only legitimate reason I believe I was able to forge a career doing this is I know this sounds conspicuous, but like just trying my best to be a good dude and forge real relationships instead of attempting to gain something from other people. Um, because if you just focus on, being a good human, again, I know that sounds like really obvious, uh, but then you're in a position where people actually want to help you. Um, you don't even really have to ask. Like People genuinely want to help you. And I think there's a lot of people on Twitter and stuff that are so invested in putting other people down. And I just, I don't understand what the end game is with that. Uh, like, what it what what's the goal there? What what are you gaining from doing that? And I think a lot of people view it as a threat when someone starts a new podcast, like it's some competition. And I just think that's completely the wrong way to look at it. I think you'd be surprised about the outcome that you'd get from shifting your perspective on that and just really trying to support people 
um, especially when you think they're doing really good work. Again, that's just my opinion. People can do whatever the hell they want. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, but even though I'm not going to make a big announcement on Twitter or anything about this, and I left on such good terms with those dudes, and I'm really proud of that because that's not always easy to do when you're kind of on different pages. Um, but I just wanted to share it here because I'm really grateful for the community that I've built with the people that enjoy this podcast. Um, so I always try and fill you guys in on everything that I've got going on. And I'm extremely excited for some of the stuff that's going to come. Um, so let's move on. That's it. That's all I wanted to say. All right. Sony Open. Let's do it. This is the first full field tournament of the year. 144 players in the field. It has been contested at Wailai Country Club in Honolulu since 1965. Pretty good field. We've got Bryson. We've got Webb. We've got Cam Smith. We've got Abe Anser, Hideki, Billy Horschel, Corey Connors, Harris English. Solid group of players. It's a, it's a better field than I remember from years past. Last year, Kevin Na won at 21 under. In 2020, Cameron Smith won at 11 under. 2019, Matt Kuchar won at 22 under. 2018, Patton Kazire, 17 under. 2017, Justin Thomas, 27. 2016, Fabian Gomez, 2015, Jimmy Walker, 2013, Russell Henley. 2012, Johnson Wagner, 2011, Mark Wilson. So just by reading off some of those names, I think you can draw a lot of similarities from these winners. Like a lot of these players are either really elite iron players or really elite putters. Um, a lot of shorter hitters, a lot more accurate guys have had success here. And you will probably understand why that is when we dig into the course. So let's talk about the course. All right. Wildlife Country Club. It's a par 70 measuring only 7,044 yards on the scorecard. It's a rather short course by tour standards. It was designed in 1927 by Seth Rayner, one of the great architects of all time, uh, a personal favorite of mine. C.B. McDonald was his mentor, and to me, C.B. McDonald is the GOAT. He's the greatest to ever do it. So obviously, I'm a huge fan of Seth Rayner as well. He's from New York. He's a, he's a Princeton guy, just like my brother. Shout out, Sam. Um, and he has played a hand in some of the greatest architectural marvels uh, that exist today, in my humble opinion. Chicago Golf Club, The Creek, which is my favorite course ever, Fisher's Island, Camargo, Shore Acres, Yeeman, Yeeman's Hall. I mean, these are, these are some of the seminal works of the 20th century. These are uh, masterpieces in my opinion and he also designed a nine-hole course at the Hotchkiss school uh, the boarding school that I went to in Lakeville Connecticut and played golf at every day I definitely wouldn't call that one of his masterpieces uh, but it was still a course that brought me a lot of joy um, so pretty much all of Rayner's designs have a ton of McDonald influence in them, whether it be a Redan hole, uh, Biarritz, Eden Road. These are all from the CB McDonald School of Architecture. And it's really exciting that we get to see at least one of his courses on the PGA Tour. It's not his best, I'll be blunt. Um, his best work couldn't hold a tournament, probably. the First of all, the memberships wouldn't want it. And 
the courses are too short nowadays, frankly. Um, but Wiley's fine. Uh, it, it's far from his best, but I think, you know, I think the aspects that make rain are so great. They may not work as well in tropical settings. I think they work better in northeastern climates with bent grass. But, you know, for the most part, Wiley does play decently firm and fast. It plays a lot firmer and faster than we saw last week at Kapalua. Those greens were really slow and sticky. Um, and these, while still in a tropical climate, are a little bit more like we see in Florida. They run at 11 on the stint meter, which is definitely definitely a lot faster than what we saw last week. And it's a very short course. Uh, it's not incredibly narrow off the tee. The fairways are still about 34 yards wide on average, smallish greens around 7,100 square feet on average. So definitely much smaller landing areas and greens compared to what we saw last week. But it's it's not as narrow as Harbor Town. The greens aren't as small as Pebble, but you know, very similar to what I said last week. This is all really just going to come down to the wind. Um, it's not a super difficult course. We've seen the winner get to 20 under in seven of the last 10 years. Although in 2020, Cam Smith won at 11 under when we got a ton of wind. Uh, so it's really just going to come down to the wind. It's it's really too early to tell on that. I'll give an update on my Tuesday show regarding the forecast. But for the most part, under standard conditions, uh, Wiley is still a course where you got to make birdies to keep up. Uh, in 2013, 2016, 2017, it ranked as the easiest par 70 on tour. In 2014, 2015, it ranked as the second easiest. In 2019, it ranked as the third easiest. So the number one thing that sticks out to me, monitor the weather. Um, but if we get calm conditions, you want to be looking at players that are definitely more comfortable in easy scoring conditions. I'm absolutely going to be looking at birdies or better gained again, most likely opportunities gained as well, and scoring in easy conditions. The number two thing that really sticks out to me, like I said, these fairways aren't incredibly narrow in terms of width, but they are firm, um, which makes them play more narrow than they actually are. And driving accuracy here is really low. It's only 50 53%. And that's very low compared to a tour average of 62%. And it ranks inside the top 15 in difficulty in driving accuracy nearly every single year. And with two and a quarter inch Bermuda rough, you know, that's by no means a death sentence, but it's enough of a problem where you really do want to be playing from the fairway here. Uh, again, it traditionally ranks as one of the harder courses in rough proximity. Um, of course, it's a very short course, though. So if you're hitting wedges out of the rough, it's not the end of the world. I mean, Justin Thomas has won here not hitting a ton of fairways. Patton Gazire has won here not hitting a lot of fairways. Kevin Na last year actually lost in fairways game, lost in good drives game, and was just neutral off the tee. So if someone isn't super accurate off the tee, I don't think there's a reason I don't think there's a reason not to play him, but driving accuracy definitely does help here. Um, you can't really just wail away with driver here, or you are going to be cut off from certain angles. It's it's not really a huge driver course. Um, I mean, you can hit it, but you, you don't really need to hit uh, driver a ton here. Driving distance is right around 285 yards, which is about average. Um, but I think that more has to do with the firmness of the fairways than 
this really being a course where you want to be wailing away. Um, like even last year, I forgot what hole it was, but guys were taking it up a different fairway. And the PGA Tour was like, nope, that's internal OB now. So you don't really have much of an advantage here if you are particularly dominant with your driver. I mean, you want to be accurate, but I'm still underweight uh, a little bit on off the tee stuff. So ultimately, it is, it's very simple here, in my opinion. Uh, you need really hot irons or a really hot putter. Um, that's it. That is the formula. Like last year, Kevin Na gained a combined eight strokes putting in approach, only three off the tee and around the green. Second place, Chris Kirk, 8.7 approach in putting, 2.3 off the tee and around the green. The best example probably is Morikawa, who lost 2.8 strokes combined off the tee and around the green and gained 11.7 strokes approach and putting and finished seventh. Um, and there are there are countless examples of this. Now, if it gets windier here, short game is going to come into play a little bit more. Like the year that Cam Smith won at 11 under, short game popped a little bit higher for me. The greens are still on the smaller side and greens and regulation are right around tour average. But if conditions are easy, like they normally are, um, if you're relying on short game at Sun here, chances are you're not in contention to win the tournament. Um, and scrambling percentage is easier here than tour average. And over the last five years, winners have ranked on average outside the top 20 in strokes gain around the green. Even in the Cam Smith year, he gained 8.2 strokes putting. Like that is why he won. Brendan Steele in second place, 12.4 strokes putting in approach, lost 0.8 strokes off the tee and around the green. Justin Thomas, the year before, 13.6 strokes putting in approach, won the tournament. Second place, Jordan Spieth. 10.6 strokes putting in approach. So I can't emphasize this enough. That's it. That is the formula. Um, I want to try and get better at, at dumbing it down. I know my listeners are an extremely intelligent bunch, but I still want to get better for new listeners to be able to consume kind of digestible content that isn't just me being so in the weeds all the time. And so, you know, I would not select players this week that haven't shown an ability to be elite at one of those skills, right? Like, can this guy get super hot with his irons? Can this guy get super hot with his putter? Preferably on Bermuda greens. If they aren't checking one of those boxes, um, I'm not interested. Uh, I'm probably not interested in them this week. Just a couple more things to illustrate my point. I'm pulling these from my good pal, friend of the program, Steve Bamford's website, Golf Betting System. Um, I would encourage you to check it out if you haven't already. But winners here, last 10 years, have ranked 26th in driving distance, 35th in driving accuracy, 30th in strokes gained off the tee, 21st in scrambling, 22nd in strokes gained around the green. So all of the winners here, they average outside the top 20 in all of the major off the tee and around the green stats. But they've ranked ninth in greens and regulation, sixth in putting average, 14th in strokes gain approach, third in strokes gain putting. Um, so there you go. All outside the top 20 in around the green and off the tee stuff and really, really high in approach and putting. Okay. couple quotes that I really liked. Matt Kuchar. This course is tricky. 
it's tight. There are a lot of dog legs. Finding the fairways are a tough thing to do, and I drove it really well. Certainly, this course is unique. We don't play many like it. It reminds me a little bit of Hilton Head, a little bit of Colonial. It's tight, it's narrow, it's flat, but man, it's tricky. Uh, And then he compared it to El Camelion. Both courses are very tight, very demanding driving courses. That would be the biggest similarity. So if you're into comp courses, uh, this is probably a really good week for that. And I added this all into my model. There, There's a lot in my model this week because there are a lot of different courses where if you've played well there, I think that absolutely could translate to YLI. So here are the ones that I like. El Camelion, uh, where they have the Mayacoba, Harbortown, Sea Island, Colonial, Innisbrook, Pebble Beach, Sedgefield. Even TPC Sawgrass and TPC Southwind aren't terrible, um, although it, it pains me to compare Die to Rainer. But uh, there's a lot of corollary courses that you could look at here that I don't hate. Um, here's another quote from Justin Thomas. I can hit a lot of two irons out here, and then I'm still having short irons in. A lot more drivers last week, he's referring to Kapalua, obviously, just kind of wailing away. This one's from Kevin Kisner. I have to keep it in the fairway, which is difficult with the wind and how fast the fairways were going. I love these greens. They were a little less grainy than last week. He's talking about Kapalua again. Jimmy Walker. Obviously, I know this is one of the harder weeks to hit fairways. The greens are small. I mean, they are tiny compared to last week. The fairways are tiny. It's a much smaller course. This one's from Zach Johnson. This is completely different from Kapalua. You're going from the biggest fairways to the smallest fairways, the biggest greens to the smallest greens. Wiley, you've got to pick it apart and plot your way around. Hit the ball in the fairway, stay below the pen. Here's Matt Kuchar again. These greens are much friendlier to putt. I feel like I have a really good chance to see the ball go in. I love Kapalua, but the amount of slope and the amount of grain in the greens is challenging. Here, these greens are much flatter with much less grain and much less slope, and it seems like a much easier place to make putts now. So like I said, sometimes you got to go a little bit deeper than Bermuda greens, right? These greens, those greens last week at Kapalua, they were a lot closer to past pollen than they were to these greens. And, and these greens are a lot closer to what you see at, I don't know, the Honda Classic or TPC Sawgrass. And a lot of the players, as you can tell, talk about the importance of hitting the fairways here, even though the stats don't bear that out as much. um, I still have a little driving accuracy stuff in there because just of what all the players said. But again, like Justin Thomas mentioned, you can hit a lot of two irons off the tee here. The last thing that I want to point out before I get into the early leans, um, eight of the last 10 winners played in the tournament of champions the week before. Now I'm recording this like midway through the final round. Uh, the tournament of champions is not finished yet. I'm recording this, um, Sunday afternoon. And so I haven't really done a deep dive yet on a lot of the players that are playing today because I just, I like to have all of their most updated and recent strokes gain statistics updated before I, you know, have a take 
on one of those guys. Um, so a lot of the players that I'm going to talk about in my early leans are players that didn't play in the tournament of champions. Um, I'll talk more about the field at large on, on, in my Tuesday show. Um, but can you win without having played in the tournament of champions? I, yes, I think you can. Um, Cam Smith did it in 2020. Russell Henley did it in 2013 as well. Um, it certainly helps if you've played Kapalua. Um, and I'm sure when I dig into some of the Kapalua guys, I'll probably, you know, make some changes about kind of the uh, group that I end up betting and rostering. Um, but I wouldn't make whether they've played at Kapalua a deal breaker. Um, it's definitely something I would use to strengthen a case for someone. Um, same with course history. Uh, like course history has proven to be pretty important here. There's not a lot of first time winners here. In fact, this one's again from Mr. Steve Banford. 15 of the last 16 winners have played the Sony Open before. Um, so as you'll see in a second, I did look a bit at course history and how players have performed on similar courses. Okay, so here's what I came up with. This is probably the most uh, complex model that I've made in quite some time, uh, but I think it's really accurate. Um, so I think I think it was worth my time. Uh, if you want me to send you the whole thing, uh, you can DM me. That's fine. But I, I'm just going to run through. I'm just going to run through it very quickly and then give you my top 10. And, and then I want to talk about a couple players. So I have off the tee, a combination of strokes gain off the tee and fairways gained a weighted combo for 10%. Uh, I have a weighted combination of strokes gain approach and weighted proximity from 125 to 200 yards. 68% of all approach shots come from that yardage range. Um, so a lot of short to middle irons here. I know that seems like a giant yardage gap, but it's basically honing in on, okay, who are the best in the world uh, with a like a gap wedge to a seven iron, right? Um, so I, I think you could kind of draw a lot over a large sample size. I think... I think short-term proximity statistics are a little faulty, um, but a weighted combination of that proximity bucket plus um, strokes gain approach for 30%. 20% Bermuda putting, 15% um, scoring stats, so opportunities gained, birdies are better gained, easy scoring conditions, um, and then 25% course history and corollary courses, right? So... 10% on Wiley, and then I split everything up where I looked at El Camelion, I looked at Harbortown, I looked at Sea Island, I looked at Colonial, I looked at Sedgefield, I looked at Innisbrook, I looked at Pebble Beach. Um, so there's a lot in there, right? And as you can see, I'm looking a ton at short iron play. I'm looking a ton at how guys have performed on shorter similar courses, obviously Bermuda putting a fair amount on scoring stats because it's easy and a little bit of driving accuracy, but that's it. I'm not really looking at short game. I'm not looking at distance. I want guys who can keep it in the fairway, really good Bermuda putters, really good short iron players can make a lot of birdies and have done well on these types of courses. So here's who it spit out. Number one, Webb Simpson, shocker. Number two, Russell Henley. Shocker. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how people handle Russell Henley this week. He almost makes too much sense. Um, and I would encourage people to uh, 
consider the old adage, it's not that easy. Uh, but yeah, he's going to, I mean, he, he's going to check a lot of boxes for you this week. So number two, Russell Henley, number three, Cameron Smith, that he might even crack number one once I upload the Kapalua stats. Um, but I have him at three right now. Number four, a Banser again, shocker. This is a, you know, this is a token a Banser course. Number five, Sung JM also makes a lot of sense. Number six, Corey Connors, uh, number seven, Emiliano Grio. Number eight, Bryson DeChambeau. Again, I would encourage people to, you know, kind of think about Bryson a little bit more this week. I know it doesn't seem like a Bryson course. I don't know if I'm going to play him. I haven't decided yet. I may not play him. But uh, he's better on shorter courses than you would think, right? Like he almost won the players. Um, And he still rates out, you know, very highly uh, for me. He's probably the best player in this field, and he's not— um, he's not number one in my model, right? So I, I'm not I'm not saying there's any value in betting Bryson. He's probably going to p- be priced as the number one or number two player, and I have him behind guys at this course like Abe and Cameron Smith and Webb Simpson and Sungjae and Corey Connors. But I, I think you could make a case for Bryson. I, I think flat golf courses for him, um, which we talked about on my season preview with with Nagels, who you should check that one out if you haven't already. Um, but yeah, Bryson's, Bryson's interesting. I was a little surprised to see him play here. Joel Dahman, number nine, and Max McGreevy, number 10. I have no idea how Max McGreevy uh, snuck his way in there. And I hope I don't lose a ton of credibility um, for you guys by the fact that Max McGreevy uh, snuck himself in there. I probably have to change one or two things around. Let's see why he rated out so well. His short-term form with his irons and his longer-term form on Bermuda and limited sample size, he's really accurate off the tee. He makes a lot of birdies, and he's really solid from all of those proximity buckets. Interesting. Okay. I mean, he he just got his tour card ahead of this fall swing, and he started off slow, but um, 19th at the Houston Open, 16th at the RSM Classic. Uh, gain 2.6 on approach. All right, we'll see. Uh, I'm not going to go crazy on him. This is all still a very limited sample size, but you know, my model has obviously identified something in him, and I think he's probably a really cheap pivot. From there's going to be a bunch of guys, right? Like Brian. This is a week that Brian Stewart is going to pop for everyone. You're going to get Zach Johnson and Matt Kuchar. Um, all those guys make sense, right? Um, but you know, the at the top, right? I think uh, again, I still have to really dive into some of these uh, tournament of champions guys. And again, I imagine this guy will be quite popular. Uh, but I, I listen. I really hope that I just uh, go with my gut this time and go with what my numbers are telling me. Because if you guys will remember, I came on this podcast last week and declared that John Rahm would win and stated my love for Cam Smith. And I didn't bet either of those guys. I bet Xander as I, as I typically do. So hopefully I follow my advice this time a little bit more, but really love Corey Connors, right? I I think Corey Connors is, is hard to not love here. Um, he's gone 39, third, 12th, and 
Most importantly with Connors, he's always putted really well here. Um, in all three appearances, he's gained over two strokes putting. So it seems like he's really comfortable on these greens, which is something I'm always trying to look for with Corey Connors. Um, and he's done a lot of his best work on Bermuda. Obviously, he's not a great putter, but when he putts well, it's often on Bermuda. And he's done great at a lot of these similar courses that really emphasize short iron play, like fourth at the Heritage, seventh at the Players, eighth at Colonial, tenth at the RSM. Any course where irons are really important, where short irons are really important, Connors is probably the type of player that you want to look at here. Um, just over a large sample size, he's oddly a little below average in in like that big proximity thing distance of 150 to 175 where you have like 25 percent of the approach shots come from but he's very solid across the board everywhere else like i said surprisingly pretty good on bermuda better than you think and one of the most maybe the most accurate driver of the ball in this entire field so awesome and easy scoring conditions gives himself a ton of chances Really good at the corollary courses that I'm looking at. This is definitely a course where I think you probably want to look in Connor's direction. Um, one or two more guys that I want to talk about. Um, again, I, I I don't want to like make any bold proclamations because there's about 18 players that are playing in the Tournament of Champions that I really want to devote a little bit more time to. But a couple of the other guys that stood out to me in in my research and modeling, I think this is a pretty decent spot for Lanto, right? Um, I think Ches Reevy was somebody that uh, that popped out for me. You know, Ches terrible on Bermuda, uh, but if he's played well on Bermuda and if he's putted well on Bermuda, it's been at the Sony Open. Um, he's played here 11 times, made eight cuts, four top 25 finishes, including a third in 2019 and eighth in 2017. And it, it just seems like he's really comfortable here. Um, he, again, the putter is hit and miss, but on four separate occasions, he's gained over 7.9 strokes on approach here, which really stood out to me. And he's been great at pebble, great at Mayakoba, great at St. Jude. Um, so, you know, he's somebody that, again, one of the most accurate drivers of the ball you'll ever find. Great iron player, really elite from 125 to 175. My my biggest concern, again, is probably that long-term baseline on Bermuda is not great. And sometimes because of his putter, he can struggle to keep up in a pure birdie fest. But he was a guy that I was absolutely looking at. Grio, again, just rates out super well because he's so good with those short irons and even with him being such a bad uh putter on Bermuda it's actually like it's a better it's a better surface for him he's he's not as bad on Bermuda as you'd think and he's done excellent on a lot of the corollary courses I'm looking at too second at the Heritage third at Colonial eighth at Mayakoba uh this is definitely a course where you would expect Grio to play well. Um, I actually think I want him a little bit more if there's some more wins because it's kind of similar to Revy, He can struggle to keep up and really in easy scoring conditions. That would probably be my biggest concern. But again, he's played here five times, never finished worse than 47th. 
I, I, I'm kind of coming around to Ryan Palmer. Um, I played him a lot at the beginning of last year, and then he was just terrible for a while, but he's, he's kind of starting to show some signs of life again, and he's had such a great history at this event. I, I think he will... I think he'll probably be a little bit less. He won't be as popular maybe as some of the guys that I just mentioned because he got pretty awful there for a while, but he's played here 15 times. He's made the cut 11 times. He won here in 2010, five top 20s, including a fourth in 2020. Um, really solid at some of the corollary courses I was looking at. And he kind of improved this fall. It seems like things were kind of finally starting to come around for him again at the Houston Open where he gained five strokes ball striking, which was good for his best ball striking performance in nearly a year. Um, So it's good to see him start playing well again. You know, guys like Brendan Todd and Chris Kirk are going to pop up for you probably those guys make sense to me too I think I think with Brendan Todd I I worry a little bit about the upside like he really has to have it going with the putter to catch you a top five in fact you know he hasn't he won back-to-back times in 2019 and hasn't really sniffed contention since but you look at his best finishes this year and it's Eighth at Colonial, tenth at the Wyndham, eleventh at the Mayakoba. So I think he's probably a good DraftKings play, maybe a top forty play. I'm not sure if you're getting that kind of top five upside uh, with him, unless he just goes absolutely nuclear with the putter. But I think he's a he's a pretty safe plug and play guy to to make the cut. And the only other guy that I wanted to throw out there that I really that really kind of caught my attention. And this is going to be a, this is a guy that's probably going to be over a hundred to one that I'm going to bet outright. And I'm going, he's probably going to be in the six K range, maybe 7,000, but I would still be surprised about that. But I really, I really liked what I saw from, from Tom Hoagie. And he already has a third and a 12th here. Um, He always seems to hit the ball really well here. He's had some good putting weeks here as well. And he's just, he's an awesome iron player, specifically really strong over a large sample size from 150 to 200 yards, decent accuracy off the tee, not, not great on Bermuda, although historically it's been his best surface, uh, but pretty good at, at making birdies and going low in easy scoring conditions, pretty good on the corollary courses. He finished second at the Greenbrier, which I think it's a lot different than this course, but it's also a Seth Rayner design. Um, third at the Mayakoba, fourth at the RSM, ninth at the RSM, 12th at Pebble Beach. And he quietly had a really good fall swing, right? Like 36 at the Fortinet, miscut at Sanderson Farms, but he lost five strokes putting. 14th at the Shriners, 32nd at the CJ Cup in a really good field. 17th at the Zozo, 56 at the Mayakoba, 46 at the Houston Open, and then fourth at the RSM Classic. And Hoagie has now gained over three strokes on approach in six straight measured starts, and it actually seems like it's getting better for him. Like he gained 6.2 strokes on approach at the Houston Open and 4.4 on approach at the RSM Classic en route to a fourth place finish. So Hoagie kind of checks all the boxes in, in kind of a cheaper guy that I'm looking for. He can get super hot on approach. Not a great putter, but he's definitely capable of spiking. Like he's gained seven strokes putting at the Northern Trust in August, another three at the Shriners in October, but he's not at all reliant on his putter, which I really like. Like if if he putts well, though, I think his ceiling is relatively high, actually, compared to a lot of players that he will be priced around. Like I think his ceiling 
is actually higher right now than a Zach Johnson or a Russell Knox who just don't top five anymore. Um, and those are both guys I really like this week, but I worry about their ability to win. And Hoagie has all the tools. So I, I think it's going to be a big week for, for Hoagie. I will most likely be betting him outright, and uh, he will be a prominent fixture in my DraftKings lineups. That's it for me. Um, I will talk far more about this field in depth on my Tuesday show once I kind of dive into some of these Kapalua guys. Um, Feinberg's still on the COVID list so far, so we're going to move my boy John up one week, most likely. PGA Tout on Twitter, you probably know him. He puts out um, these fantastic uh, Sunday previews that I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you are already aware of, but I would in- highly encourage you to check those out at PGA Tout on Twitter. Always a good time talking to him. And you can catch me again on the scramble with Rick Tuesday and Friday. I will not be doing this uh, show next week, or actually I won't be doing the scramble Friday either. Um, I've had a golf trip planned with my college buddies for quite some time now. We've had a plan for like a year. Um, and this was the only weekend that everyone could kind of make it work. Um, Valley club of Montecito, my first Alistair McKenzie course ever. So super psyched about that. Uh, you can catch me later in the week on Tuesday on my Tuesday show on the scramble with Rick on Tuesday. Cheers guys. We'll talk to you next time.